one of the things that I heard and has stuck with me since my time at the Pew Charitable Trust is this idea that no decision about me should be made without me. We see this with all kinds of different policy decisions that are made. So many policy decisions are made by people who do not live the lives of the people that the policy is going to serve or impact. They are urban people who are making decisions for rural people. They are men making decisions for women. They are people of wealth making decisions for people who don't have wealth. And I think we need to take a step back and make sure that we're gathering the knowledge base and the the educational background, the real lived experiences of those people who our programs are intended to benefit so that they actually do benefit them. And then we need to make sure that we iterate on those programs. We can't have one and done situations. Hi, I'm Jacob Dolans. And I'm Lauren Mathena. And this is the Rise Collaborative Podcast. This is a podcast for dreamers, doers, and innovators in rural America. We believe entrepreneurship and innovation are key to leveraging our existing strengths to revitalize local economies and provide more opportunities for all people. If you've ever wanted to go behind the scenes and learn how to spark innovation and build ecosystems, this is the podcast for you. Through conversations with some incredible experts, we will guide you in leading the change you want to see in your regional economy. As ecosystem builders in rural Southern Virginia, we're learning as we go, and we invite you to come along with us. I'm really excited to have Trinity on the podcast today. I think we've known each other for about 27 years, which is really wild. So Trinity, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and what you do? Sure. Trinity Thorpe-Lubnefsky, and I work for Comcast. I currently lead the partner development and community activations team, which oversees internet essentials and lift zone activations. Awesome. We are really excited to talk to you today about all of that. We were hoping that you could just begin with giving us an overview for anyone who doesn't know all of the awesome innovative things that Comcast has been working on. Sure. I'll give you a a quick overview. I'll start with Internet Essentials. So Internet Essentials was established more than a decade ago to help bridge the digital divide, specifically to take care of the K-12 education gap that we are seeing that primarily was happening because of a lack of technology and internet at home and digital skills training that that young people had. In order to be successful for education, we knew they needed that. So we established this program. And over the past decade plus, we've expanded the program more than a dozen of times. And currently, we are serving now all low-income Americans up to about 200% of the federal poverty line. So about 55,000 dollars for a family of four. The Zone program, which is also under my purview from an activation standpoint, was started during the pandemic. And it's a really incredible program that was responding to school closures. That's how it had its origin. Similar to Internet Essentials, it's expanded. So when schools began to close, we knew that there needed to be a safe space for students to be able to go and access distance learning, remote learning when they didn't have internet at home or their parents needed to work. They were first responders or in uh, a critical position where they had to be in person. So we worked with rec centers, nonprofit organizations all over the country to establish a thousand of these. We have more than a thousand now, which is absolutely awesome. And as we've transitioned through the pandemic and now we're transitioning out of the pandemic, 
the nature of those lift zones has changed pretty significantly. We're not just considering them as safe spaces for students to be able to access remote learning. We're really thinking of these spaces as hubs of technology so that if a person comes in and needs access to digital skills training, needs access to the internet, needs to learn how to use a computer, or wants to develop in some type of a workforce fashion, we can activate within those lift zones in order to bring them the content and the experience that they need in order to take full advantage of what the internet connection provides. Another one of our initiatives, which I don't work on personally, but is a tremendous initiative, is RISE, which is the stands for our Representation, Investment, Strength, and Empowerment. And this is a program that's really designed to help small businesses who have been dealing with the ongoing impact of the pandemic, social unrest, and other types of environmental events. It helps them by providing a host of different types of resources and services, including consulting, media, creative production. It might include a technology makeover within their business itself, and then a monetary grant to help support the company's growth and sustainability. We offer RISE, and we have RISE, as you know, uh, Jacob, in uh, Virginia, and actually in many states across the country, we have a number of RISE businesses, 1,100 RISE businesses. And these businesses are really taking advantage of everything that we have to offer and all of our learnings from the entrepreneurial space over probably the past number of decades. And they're benefiting from these and helping to grow their own businesses. And for RISE, we specifically focus on communities of color and women as part of the business selection criteria. So... If we have entrepreneurs listening to this, how do they become part of a program or how do they become part of RISE? You're asking such a good question. So I know that there's a a specific times in which we request folks to apply. So right now, organizations that are interested in applying can fill out our application at ComcastRise.com. Okay. I want to go back in time. So... I remember having conversations with you in high school about how we were going to go off and change the world. And you're one of the people that really inspired me to do something socially beneficial. So I would love to hear you know, more about your story and your background and how, do you, how did you get to where you are today? Ah, thanks, Jacob. As you know, Jacob, but other listeners might not know, I grew up in, in foster care. I entered foster care when I was five and aged out of foster care when I was 18. That period in time, I had a number of different families, attended tons of different schools, had a large period of time where I didn't attend any school or maybe only two or three weeks of any particular grade. And so when I got into my last foster family, the one that I ended up aging out with, absolutely wonderful individuals, I was in the eighth grade and I hardly knew how to read, didn't really have a strong math or science background and felt like I was at a pretty significant disadvantage. Uh, Fortunately, I had a family who was really dedicated to helping me develop these skills that I didn't have. And so spent that first summer (laughs) working to try to get me caught up, especially in math and in reading, so that I I could start the year off in a really great way. And I remember not feeling very confident and getting some pretty poor grades at the very beginning of that eighth grade year. 
And then by that ninth grade year and into high school was, you know, taking honors classes and AP classes and doing very well educationally. But I kept thinking about what I had and what made that experience so unique to me. One big component of why I was able to achieve what I did achieve academically was because of the federal TRIO programs, specifically the Upward Bound program, which I entered into when I was a freshman in high school. And that program offered uh, after-school tutoring. It offered a summer program where I would live on a college campus and be able to take courses within a college setting that felt like I was experiencing the college life, which gave me a taste of belonging. It helped me to see that I could belong at a space like that. I also was invited to go to the student leadership conference, which is part of the TRIO programs as well. It's run by the Council for Opportunity and Education, who are the advocacy folks for the TRIO programs. And they brought, I think it was 500 students from across the country to DC to meet their representatives and to pick a topic and debate a topic. I remember this so like specifically because it was the first time I had ever been in in DC. I had ever met any member of, you know, any elected person and going around to those offices. I remember thinking, I want to be here. What a cool place to be. Like you're making laws that impact so many different people. What a cool thing. Now I'm not as jaded as I was then, (laughs) but it just inspired me to think about policy and think about research and think about the intersection between those things to create decisions and make decisions that are really founded on evidence. At the same time, I saw the impact that personal stories had on our elected officials. And I know this is a lot to observe for a 17-year-old, but bear, bear with me. I was 17 at the time. And I thought about like, even though there's all this data, it's usually one story that I felt like made the big difference. And when I was 21, I was invited to speak before the Senate Health Education, Labor and Pensions Committee about the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act. And when I spoke about my experiences in the TRIO program and with Upward Bound, I spoke from a very personal standpoint about my experiences, how TRIO helped me what it was like to be in foster care. And the program was reauthorized. But the most poignant thing was how many people came and how many elected people came and said it was your story that drove this decision that made us want to vote in this way. And I was on the panel, you know, in this presentation with people with lots of letters behind their names who were presenting tons of data, financial data. My eyes glazed over it, all of it. And I I suppose that some other eyes did too. And that's why I was getting these types of comments. But those two experiences in TRIO and Upward Bound in that summer program, feeling like I belonged on a college campus. And then in the student leadership conference and the um, going onto the Hill to offer this testimony, those really solidified for me that I wanted to do research and policy and help change the world through those specific things. And I I didn't really waver all that much once I was in and and going through college in that determination and even through graduate school as well. Thank you for sharing all of that. So that carries us kind of up through age 21 and 
you knew what you wanted to study. How did uh, your career at Comcast kind of grow? I want to go back a little bit before I even started at Comcast to my very first job out of graduate school. And I was hired as a research assistant to look at federal foster care legislation that was being proposed and to work on it, to understand what states were doing, how the advocacy efforts were going, what the research was that could help position our advocacy efforts even better because we were advocating for some specific legislation. And that program was set to end if we were successful at getting a piece of legislation passed. And if the goals um, had been found to be fulfilled. And my job was to research both and to help with both. And it was such a great experience to be on the other side of the policy instead of talking to our legislators about this type of legislation directly, which I did limitedly. I was on the, the development side of it. How does the advocate use the research to go and tell the story? How does the advocate use the personal story to go and tell the story? And so when we were successful at getting that piece of legislation passed and then signed into law, I felt like it's a lifetime achievement. (laughs) I can go and do something else now. And so I, I went on to the school district of Philadelphia and got super interested in data and how data could help tell stories and help drive decisions in the same way that a personal anecdote could. And so I was specifically interested in school safety and how we could make our schools these really safe, culturally exciting areas or locations so that our students wanted to go and felt comfortable learning in those environments. Because I think as educators and as people who administrators of school districts, we often forget the interplay between safety and the ability to actually learn. And I wanted to bring that to the forefront. And so we started actually including measures of safety in our analysis of schools and our analysis of of how well they were doing, in addition to other types of more academic-based standards like test assessments and attendance and, and these other things, which was really exciting for me. After I had my triplets, as a lot of <laughs> a lot of people do, I came to this point where I really wanted to be able to learn more and grow more and understand how the private sector implemented policy, how the private sector used data. So applied for a government affairs job at Comcast in Philadelphia, at their headquarters, that was specifically focused on looking at franchising. And I had no knowledge of franchising, nor how it worked. But I knew how to use data and I knew the impact policy could make. And I had had that experience in my prior two positions. And so, you know, I really credit the people who interviewed me for taking a big risk, uh, hiring somebody with a completely (laughs) different type of a background, both personally and from an educational standpoint. I have degrees in social work and social policy. Those aren't clear ties to the cable industry. I don't have an MBA and I don't have a law degree. And that's what a lot of people have that are in government affairs. But it was such a cool opportunity. And right away, I just realized how much I had to learn. It's so fast paced. It's so different in the approach. It is extremely data driven. But there's also that really clear and 
important aspect of the personal storytelling and the anecdote that is so essential and important, especially when trying to make sense of all the big data. Yes, we're covering X amount of the country with our our service. And yes, that service offers gigabit speeds. But what does that mean for an individual? And that's the story that I wanted to help tell. And so started doing that. Would you mind telling us one of your favorite stories? Absolutely. One of my favorite stories is about a young man named Tommy, who I met when he was 16 years old. He and his family were living in public housing, and we had just expanded the Internet Essentials program to include people who were living in public housing. This was back in 2015, 2016. And we were doing an event, and as part of the preparation for that event, I wanted to make sure that people in the community that we're going to have the event at knew about this program, even though we hadn't launched it yet. I just wanted them to know beforehand, we're coming, and here's what it's going to be about. And I met this particular family and was blown away by the dedication of every single member of their family to education. And the mom was working on her GED but she had to travel to the library, and which is awesome. It's a terrific place. But it took her sometimes two hours to get there because she had to transfer so many buses. And she has health problems. And her daughter was also working on uh, getting a, a college degree, an associate's degree, and was taking the buses with her young daughter at the time to try and pave the way for, for her own future. And then their son was in high school, he's 16, Tommy was 16 at the time, and track athlete, football star, you name it, like just this incredible kid, but was spending all of his time away from his family because the only access to the internet that they had was through the community center. The only access that he had was through his community center or his school. And so we got them set up with internet in their home, which really helped the mom in particular with her ability to pursue her GED. But it also helped her two children, Gloria and Tommy. Gloria was able to go and and actually she became a correctional officer. Uh, And Tommy um, graduated from high school with honors, went on to college, continued being an Internet Essentials customer in college because we had expanded the program to Pell Grant recipients and is now pursuing his PhD and will be graduating with his PhD in just a couple of years. I don't think that our program is to credit for it, but I do think having access to those critical tools and resources at home in a, con- in a convenient way makes the, the opportunity cost so much less. So he and his family could access so much easier what would take them leaps and bounds and a a trip through grandma's backyard and over a bridge and through bear country. And, you know, whatever it is to be able to access those resources, he was able to get them. They were able to get them at home. And I think we see a lot of this in our communities as well. We've been doing remote entrepreneurship programs for the past few years and some in person, but our entrepreneurs have struggled. Oftentimes they'll be sitting outside of the library on their cell phone, trying to zoom in, you know, with their child in the other arm and just, Folks who are driven, I think stuff like that would make a huge difference in their capability to start a business or to have equitable access to those resources. So that was a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah, thank you. If you ever want to meet Tommy, I'm sure he'd be happy to meet you guys. He's amazing. That'd be incredible. (laughs) 
So the work we do, we kind of call it ecosystem building. And it seems like you told a narrative of all of these pieces that fit together to support this family through this space. So we have essentially, I see it as like a really big puzzle and there's all these pieces, right? So there's the entrepreneurs, there are the service providers, there's the K-12 school districts, there's the community colleges, there's the fact that people need internet access, there's what Lauren's company does, you know, to increase the broadband fiber. And so there's like all these pieces that have to fit together to actually create like a sustainable, equitable, upward economic mobility. I think that's like our end goal, right? How do we work with everyone to create this upward economic mobility? So I'd love to hear what is your advice? Because it seems like y'all have done it really well. Thank you. I think the first and foremost thing is to include the people that you're trying to reach in the planning decisions and discussions. One of the things that I heard and has stuck with me since my time at the Pew Charitable Trust is this idea that no decision about me should be made without me. And that's the same for you, Jacob, and the same for you, Lauren. Any decision that's going to happen about you guys should include you in the planning process for it. And I think We see this with all kinds of different policy decisions that are made. So many policy decisions are made by people who do not live the lives of the people that the policy is going to serve or impact. They are urban people who are making decisions for rural people. They are men making decisions for women. They are people of wealth making decisions for people who don't have wealth. And I think we need to take a step back and make sure that we're gathering the knowledge base and the the educational background, the real lived experiences of those people who our programs are intended to benefit so that they actually do benefit them. And then we need to make sure that we iterate on those programs. We can't have one and done situations. If we had kept Internet Essentials the same way it was when the program started 10 years ago or more than 10 years ago, we would not have served 10 million or have connected over the lifetime of the program 10 million people. We would have served a much smaller population. And maybe there's an argument to say we would have served that population better. But we did iterate on even serving that population dozens and dozens of times before we ever tried to expand to additional populations, to community college students, Pell Grant recipients, seniors, We did it on an incremental basis because we wanted to gain the knowledge of it with our customer base and with the people that we were trying to serve prior to going out in a big way. And then I'd say the another aspect of the work that I think needs to be done is partnerships. In isolation, Comcast cannot solve a problem. We can't. We could certainly do some things, some good work, but us by ourselves. Implementing programs and implementing changes and proposing policy decisions, you're going to have a very private sector driven view. It is only in partnership with nonprofits, with government based organizations, with other businesses that aren't aren't even the same as our own private sector business that we have, that we're going to do our best. And in the same way that we need to rely on others and bring them in. We need to act as great conveners. We need to be willing to really learn from those experiences on how we do something best and also hold each other accountable for contributing to it. I think early on during the pandemic, 
there was a lot of pressure to connect people right away because otherwise education can't be delivered. The instances in which connecting people work the best were when all the different organizations within a city came together to help bring that connection to life and help do it as quickly as possible. When we paved the way for data sharing, when we understood that one operational path that we thought was going to work isn't going to work well, so let's pivot and figure out another one. When we brought that intelligence of the masses together to come up with a solution, that's when we performed the best. It takes a special kind of person to do community building work, to do web weaving work. What are some traits that you think others can aspire to, to be successful in this kind of work? I think one of the biggest characteristic traits of an individual is the ability to set aside their ego to work for the greater good. I think not everybody always wants to see economic development happen. Not everybody wants to see economic mobility happen. But I think one of the ways in which we can get to a point of common ground, which is what I think is a great characteristic to have, is by recognizing that if we can work together to spur those moments of economic development and economic mobility, that we can set aside our egos, that what is generated by all of that benefits everybody. Well, I think we have so many different areas we can go into, but I saw that you won a pretty big award recently at South by Southwest. Could you talk about that a little? So this past year, my team submitted a nomination for an innovation award through South by Southwest. And we were so excited. It was specifically uh, innovation and social impact. We were so excited to be invited as a finalist to the showcase. And so my team went to South by Southwest and were able to demonstrate the power that the lift zones have had within the communities that they serve. And they created a really immersive experience for attendees of South by Southwest to understand what it would be like to be in the shoes of somebody who was attending a lift zone and what it might be like inside of a lift zone itself. And we talked a lot about the impact of our lift zones, the impact of our Internet Essentials program, which we really have poured our hearts into over the past couple of years. And we were so excited. We didn't, we didn't actually win uh, what we had sought to win. We didn't win in our, our category. But what we did win was the People's Choice Award, which, in my opinion, was an even more meaningful and profound award for us to go out and win because it meant that other people saw the value in our work beyond just the social impact space or the categories in which we applied. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. I've seen you post stuff about digital navigators and digital skills. And I think for a lot of folks in our region, that's a really important thing that they haven't had access to. Could you talk a little bit more about the role of that in kind of community development or giving people equal opportunities? Yeah, digital navigators are so critical to the success of connectivity and digital skills training, and I think ultimately economic mobility. The term itself is a relatively new term. It was really, it came out of the pandemic. It came out of the government's federal program, the Emergency Broadband Benefit, and the, it became a, a word to describe or a term to describe the work 
that our nonprofit organizations across the country have been doing for decades around training people to use computers, write resumes, training people on how to access different types of devices, uh, how to check their email, how to set up an email, um, how to apply for government programs online, how to learn about different low-cost broadband programs that were available to them. So when this term started being used, it was a great way to categorize all this incredible work that has been going on for a really long time and specifically attach it to the need to raise digital access rates, so connectivity rates in communities, whether that be our rural communities or our more urban communities, there are connectivity gaps in both of those. And so we wanted to be able to lean in on those efforts. We've been leaning in on them for the past 10 years, but we wanted to really be able to support this additional work and understand it. We actually published a study with the Boston Consulting Group, uh, which is a tremendous study that helps us see the full impact of the work that our, our digital navigator programs, not just They're not Comcast digital navigator programs, but I call our inclusive of our partners as well. These digital navigator programs that have been out there helping people who otherwise wouldn't have access or even know about like the emergency broadband benefit program, which is now the affordable connectivity program, know how to apply for it, get signed up with an email address and they can track, you know, the applications, then be able to find out about internet essentials or other low cost programs that with the federal government's work are now available for free with the affordable connectivity program. And so we're seeing some really super tremendous success with these organizations. There's still some work to do though. And so we're really committed to being able to take this to the next level, take that study that we did and be able to build out more programming, more training so that the organizations that are participating in digital navigator efforts know about all the different benefits and resources that are available to them just because of the work that they're doing. If there are communities out there like ours that don't have digital navigators in place, what would you suggest as a starting point? I would suggest looking at the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, their website. They're a tremendous organization that's run by Angela Seifer. They work across urban centers down to rural communities and They're a representative body of organizations, associations, government agencies, uh, et cetera, that are all working towards digital equity. And so they have created a massive amount of resources that are available on their website from toolkits, digital navigator toolkits, how to get started with a, a digital navigator program, down to actually providing grants to communities to help establish digital navigator programs as well. They worked with uh, different types of tribal organizations across the the country too, to ensure that the digital navigator content that's being developed is really culturally relevant for that particular population in general. And so I think that's a really tremendous place to start. I would also recommend reading that Boston Consulting Group study as well, just to get some background on why these are so important to help with the the advocacy piece that might be needed in order to establish a a digital navigator program in a particular location. 
And then I would also look at some of the federal grant funding that's been made available through the Investment Jobs and Infrastructure Act to be able to uh, support the efforts of nonprofits and other organizations that are rolling out um, digital navigator programs, especially for the purpose of helping people sign up for the Affordable Connectivity Program and just more, more generally with digital skills training. Awesome. We can include all of that in the show notes. So if listeners want to check out those resources, it'll be easy to find. So we've talked a lot about what's currently going on. I would love to hear your kind of vision as the world as it could be. So what does all of this look like in 10 years? Yeah, that's a heavy question. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Oh, man, I've been so living in the present. It's really hard to, (laughs) to imagine. So we did this exercise as a team. And actually, we we pulled together in 2020, March of 2020, just before everything shut down. We pulled together about 300 partners and we brought them to Philadelphia and we asked them the same brilliant question. Five years. We thought it would be five years, right? It's five years from now. So it's 2025. What's the headline in the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal about digital equity? And my headline was, the digital divide is closed. And I would love nothing more than for my job to be irrelevant and to be able to go and do something else for some other type of of critical program, something else that's economic development oriented. On the, this is a cover article. And on the front of the cover article is a celebration, a massive celebration somewhere of people who are having a party because of this connectivity, because it's ubiquitous everywhere. And we all acknowledge the power that comes with that ubiquity and that equity that gets created because the digital divide has closed. So that's what I would love to see now in 10 years. (laughs) And I think we're closer in all honesty. I think we're so much closer now than we were in 2020 to seeing that happen with all of the federal government programs. So many people talking about the digital divide that never talked about it in the past, coming together to try to find solutions and think creatively about what the future holds. I think we're closer than ever. So 10 years from now, I'm excited for the cover of that newspaper. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, we do want to be um, respectful of your time. So we do have these rapid fire questions at the end, which are not really rapid fire. They're like kind of deep questions too. But the first one is what habits or daily routines do you have that allow you to have balance in this kind of work? Mm. I can't remember who said it. I think it was a a general in some military branch. And I apologize that I don't know the name, but I make my bed every morning. And um, I've done this for years and years and years. And I think it's so critical for me to form a foundation of ownership of my space. And so I try to take care of where I live and the environment that I'm working in, whether that be at work or at home. I think it's really hard at home to separate yourself from your work. And we have struggled as a society to figure out what those right lines should be. So I... I've created a a couple of practices that I try to do well at. So in addition to making my bed, I walk my dogs every morning and I walk my dogs in the evening as well. 
I carve out time to pick my kids up from school. And one might not think that this is a small thing, but it's a pretty big thing when you're ending your middle of the day or ending your meetings and you're going off for an hour, an hour and a half, and then coming back on. And then I I think it's extremely important to take vacation. I just got back from a two-week vacation. My birth family is half of my birth family my, on my father's side is Mexican. And my brother and sister, dad, aunts, uncles, grandparents all live uh, in Mexico. So I took my kids to, to visit and see their family. And we had a family reunion. And it was just so, it was such a good time to be away. And then coming back, I felt a lot more like I was ready to help change the future again. <laughs> what is a book or a resource that you would recommend for other folks who are trying to do that work of changing the future? All right. So there, there are two books that I have. The first one is Poor Economics by Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo. I take it you've read it, Jacob. I think it's phenomenal. And there's so many tremendous applications. You know, it's it's really written for a not U.S.-based society, but I, I really enjoyed the applications that can be made even to ours. And they have a more recent book that has come out, which is also really, really tremendous. And it is called Good Economics for Hard Times. Those are two books that I, I highly recommend. Good Economics for Hard Times focuses a little bit more on the U.S. Then from a not economic development perspective, but from a personal perspective, I love Jenny Larson. Her books are hysterical. She writes about her anxiety. She writes about um, the struggles that she's had in her life. She had a very interesting growing up experience similar to me. And her book, Furiously Happy, makes me furiously happy and makes me want to eat joy for breakfast. Those all sound great. We'll add them to our running book list. Thank you. So what is your favorite thing to do outside of work? Well, Jacob... My favorite thing to do outside of work is very similar to my favorite thing to do when we were in high school, which was rock climb. (laughs) I still do it. I still enjoy it. I don't do it enough. I would say hiking is up there. I do a lot more hiking than I do rock climbing, but those are my two favorites. Very cool. And I think this is our last question. Who is someone, a a person or a thought leader that, that you look up to that you would recommend other people to follow or check out? Oh my gosh. I'm going to give you a Sunday school answer, (laughs) which is like, I'm a big fan of Jesus. I think he's pretty remarkable. Like regardless of the faith aspect, the religious nature of who he was. And I would say the same for Mahatma Gandhi, the same for Siddhartha, like all these different individuals who really led movements. I feel very attached to the the struggle that went behind those and what they were fighting for and how they accepted uh, the underdog and how they cultivated and grew the underdog. And I, I actually was just learning about Pancho Villa because I was just in Mexico and same, same kind of scenario there. Granted, I don't know everything about all of these people, so I can't say that they're amazing, but those are my, my most recent people of inspiration. That's awesome. Yeah, I always assign uh, Malcolm Gladwell's David versus Goliath um, oh, kind of so to my students and they love it. And it's the story of the underdog and how do you use your resources to be successful? Yeah, I love. So Malcolm Gladwell's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant and actually audiobook. So the one where he 
he talks, he's the person who reads, I mean, all of his books he reads, but it's like a very specific, it's made for an audiobook. Is it David and Goliath? It might be David and Goliath. No, Talking to Strangers. Oh, that's a great one. Oh, it's phenomenal. Did you read it or did you listen? I read it. Oh, you got it. You got to I got to listen. Okay, cool. He has actual recordings of the things that you would be reading about. Oh, no way. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. Like Cool. Yeah. So, well, Rise Collaborative Book Club is definitely coming <laughs> soon because we got <laughs> Well, thank you so much for all your time today. I know that you're super busy, so I really appreciate you doing this. You guys are too. I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Rise Collaborative Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast app or share this episode on social media. You can connect with us on LinkedIn. We'd love you to join the dialogue, get connected to the network and learn more about Sober Eyes and the people and the places that we work. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next episode.